This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. What you're about to hear is the first part of a conversation I had with Sarah Kenzior, a St. Louis-based author who just released her new book, Hiding in Plain Sight. This interview was conducted using Twitter's live feature, and it was done at both of our houses. So if you hear some kids squealing or throwing things in the background, don't be alarmed. I was supposed to conduct this interview with Sarah at the Ethical Society of St. Louis, but social distancing restrictions pushed this conversation online. I'd like to give a big thanks to Left Bank Books for putting this conversation together. I've split this particular show up into two parts. The first part you're about to hear is my conversation with Kenzior. The second will feature hers answering questions from her fans. I started my chat with Sarah by asking her why it was important for her to be a voice against President Donald Trump, who lives in St. Louis, as opposed to New York or Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, well, there are voices against him, you know, nationwide. He's the most unpopular president in American history, which is a fact that many of our pundits uh, forget. I mean, St. Louis is my home. St. Louis is where I live. St. Louis is where I raise my children. And when I look at, um, you know, what's going on politically, I'm thinking of them. I'm thinking of the next generation and I'm thinking of their future. But I do think that my view of national politics is informed by living in St. Louis and living in Missouri. Um, in my new book, In Hiding in Plain Sight, the first chapter of it is actually on Missouri. It's on Missouri as the bellwether state, which it's always been historically. It was the state that you could rely on to predict uh, the outcome of an election. And it was often a state where national trends, uh, where prominent political and cultural figures, um, you know, where all these things that make America what it is emerge. And over the last 20 years, what it's been is the bellwether of American decline. And I say that as someone who loves Missouri, and I love living in St. Louis, and I love you know living in this state, and I'm saddened to see that we're going to go through this again as a result of uh, the coronavirus and you know the economic turmoil that we're about to face. Um, but the thing is, we've been dealing with these problems of endemic corruption, of systemic racism, of dark money in politics, of a GOP party that's acting as an apocalyptic death cult, uh, utterly um, unaccountable to the people. And so I used Missouri as an example of you know, what became a national trend uh, over the last 10 years. Before Citizens United, for example, there were laws or lack of laws in Missouri that allowed dark money to pour into our uh, local politics or state politics unencumbered, leading to disastrous outcomes. Um, and I guess, you know, the final thing I want to say is that we're often thought of as a red state. You know, there's always this red state, blue state dynamic that was invented by cable news um, during the 2000 election. It's a facetious dynamic. We're all purple states. And as I said in, in my first book, In the View from Flyover Country, 
uh, America is purple, purple like a bruise. Uh, and that's certainly true of Missouri and other states that are being hit so hard during this time. One of the things you said in your book was, we are under the tyranny of the minority on a state level, which is the subject of the tyranny of the minority on a national level, which is subject to the tyranny of the elite on, a, I guess, an international level. I want you to elaborate on that point. Basically what I'm talking about are multiple layers of corruption and a lack of accountability. And if I were to just break this down for myself, uh, the conditions that I'm currently living under in the coronavirus, I'm delighted that my uh, county executive, Steve Stenger, got indicted before the plague came because otherwise he would be the one managing it uh, versus the current St. Louis County Executive, Sam Page, is actually a doctor. So we had one criminal working as the county executive. Our governor, our former governor, Eric Greitens, who Jason knows a great deal about, uh, was also indicted multiple times for things like tying up a woman half naked in his basement to a piece of exercise equipment and uh, blackmailing her to campaign finance violations to, uh, you know, deleting documents illegally. So we have basically another alleged criminal. He's been replaced by Mike Parson, uh, who has been reluctant to take on this crisis in any serious way until he's absolutely forced to. And above that, you have the Trump administration uh, and its malice, which is often viewed as incompetence, but it is indeed malice. And then you have Trump's backers, which is really the subject of this book. Basically, you know, the federal government, the Trump administration is a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government, meaning that it doesn't serve the American people. Uh, lately, it's not even giving the pretense of serving the American people. It serves Trump and his backers. The primary backer in this case is Russia, is oligarchs from the former Soviet Union, but he's also backed by shady actors from around the world, ranging from MBS to Netanyahu to this axis of autocrats that we've seen spring up, uh, especially over the last five years in Brazil, in the Philippines, um, you know, lately with uh, the UK and Boris Johnson, we've seen a dramatic cultural shift uh, and we have lost our freedom. We have lost our sovereignty. We have lost our safety. And if you live where I live, if you live in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, in the United States, you're seeing these layers of corruption um, and this loss of you know, fundamental rights that many often took for granted until this point on, on so many levels uh, that is overwhelming. Uh, perversely, I think Missourians, you know, we were more prepared uh, in a way for what was to come with Trump. Most people I know in Missouri, whether they liked him or not, predicted his win. We certainly didn't think that it was impossible or unlikely. And part of that is, uh, you know, we've seen the worst happen time and time again. You know, the worst case scenarios for other folks are, are just scenarios for us. You know, that, I wanted to get to that because I think one of the things that I think in your mind you're unfortunately known for is that you predicted that Donald Trump was going to win the election when a lot of people said it was not going to happen. And I'll, I'm going to be honest, I was definitely one of those people you could probably search my Twitter history and it says, I don't think Donald Trump will win a single caucus or primary. And I'm outing myself there because I thought that he wasn't conservative enough for the Republican electorate. I thought that he had a trail of negative personal stuff that was like 10 miles long. How was that? How were people like me so wrong? Like what was hiding in plain sight to be so cliche 
I mean, I, you're right. There's nothing that you said there that was incorrect. Uh, he wasn't conservative enough in a traditional way. Somebody like Ted Cruz, I think, was a more typical candidate, um, you know, for whom folks in Missouri that are Republicans would often vote for. He did have a list of, you know, not just scandals, but crimes that stretched back 40 years. And I discuss those crimes in details, along with the more severe of the scandals uh, in my book. And as a kid, I grew up reading about Trump and his crimes because my mother subscribed to Spy Magazine, which was, you know, somewhat of a tongue in cheek uh, satirical magazine, but it actually did these very hardcore exposés into the wealthy and powerful. And they had a particular obsession with Donald Trump. So I knew uh, about the root of his bankruptcies, his corruption. I knew how deep it ran. I knew about his mafia ties. I thought that this was, you know, to some degree common knowledge because it was very easy to find. There were plenty of times where people were like, you know, where are you finding this wild information? What's your source on this? And I'm like, it was you. It was you, New York Times. It was you, New York Magazine, before you started covering for him and, you know, stopped covering him like you used to really cover him. And there are some journalists in particular who deserve credit for that. Uh, Wayne Barrett of The Village Voice, David K. Johnson. Um, and in terms of things like Trump's ties to the Russian mafia, uh, Robert I. Friedman is another one who did great research on that. So all of this was out there in the public domain. You know, there's this running joke that that's what was going to be on my tombstone is it was in the public domain, which is less funny now in the uh, coronavirus era. But, um, you know, because I knew that, like, but then I was watching how the media was covering it. I was watching Trump's own connections to national media, his relationship with people like Jeff Zucker, who worked with him on The Apprentice and went on to run CNN, and his ability to blackmail, bribe, threaten, manipulate, and do all these terrible things uh, to people in high positions of power, whether in politics, media, and so forth. You know, we've heard about this now. We've heard about his relationship with the National Enquirer. We've heard Michael Cohen uh, testifying to Congress about all of these threats that he made on Trump's behalf for all these years. You know, there's a whole, uh, you know, lineage of corrupt lawyers who have always surrounded Trump and done his dirty work, starting with Roy Cohn, going through Michael Cohen. Today's version is Bill Barr. Trump is not some sort of genius. He's not some mastermind. He's not the one who figures out the bureaucratic moves. He has a whole slew of scumbags to do that kind of work for him. Um, and the media was afraid, I think, to, to look that in the eye, maybe afraid for their lives, maybe afraid for their career and reputation. And that may be where I differ is because I live here. I live in Missouri. I live in St. Louis. I'm not worried about getting invited to like a cocktail party. That's nothing I'm interested in in any way. So I have nothing to lose in criticizing him. My only goal is to try to bring the truth to the American public. And because I spent so long um, when I was a PhD student in anthropology, focusing on the former Soviet Union, I was deeply alarmed by things like Trump hiring Paul Manafort, best known as a Kremlin and oligarch lackey, as well as someone who worked for, you know, what they used to call the torturer's lobby, as his campaign manager. But people kept acting like this was normal. And honestly, that is what has led uh, to America's demise, is normalcy bias, is this idea that we need to just kind of not sound the alarm for fear of sounding like an alarmist, being labeled hysterical. People care far too much about their reputations and far too little about our country and the freedom and security uh, that we have now or some have sacrificed.
And just one final note, I just want to be clear that I was by far not the only person who saw this coming. Many people who were the direct targets of Trump, who were the people most likely to suffer under his rule, thought he could win and were sounding the alarm, uh, you know, right beside me. But because most of those people aren't white, aren't rich, don't have a position in media, they were often uh, dismissed as well. And so that's another thing that, you know, we need to course correct in our future if we want to have one. So one thing in the book that you touch on is the ubiquitous nature of Trump and his family about how he was like really came to prominence in the 70s and 80s, had kind of this wilderness years in the 90s, but was still around. And obviously in the 2000s, he was on The Apprentice. He was headlining WrestleMania 23. He was just sort of everywhere, even though there's a lot of people from like the 70s and 80s who faded in notoriety uh, where Trump didn't. Do you have any theories on why he was able to maintain kind of this place in our popular consciousness when other people didn't? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in many ways, he was kind of the forerunner of the reality TV era, where you would see all these washed up D-listers rehabilitated and thrown back into the limelight. Um, after his bankruptcies and his divorces of the early 90s, he did kind of lie low, more or less, uh, in the public eye for a while. That was when his financial connections to the Russian mafia were increasing, where they were investing a lot of money in him. They were using him as a vehicle for their own devices, and they were getting him back on his feet. And it really wasn't until uh, The Apprentice, I think, that this new version of Donald Trump, which did not stand out at all in this environment because it just seemed like another buffoonish throwback from the 80s, um, I think, to most Americans, he reemerged there. And even though the very properties that he was advertising on The Apprentice were properties that were being investigated for money laundering, uh, with those investigations never leading to indictments, uh, despite a preponderance of evidence, because they would do things like uh, give big donations to judges and others involved. Um, you know, it, it was hiding in plain sight. The Apprentice is an example of, uh, you know, Trump's criminality hiding in plain sight. As for others in his fold, um, you know, one thing he's done, both as the celebrity Apprentice host, but also as the president, is bring back uh, all these throwbacks, the Jeff Sessions, Bill Barr, John Bolton, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, all of these people that if, you know, this was indeed a game show, we would have voted them off the island by now. But unfortunately, uh, we haven't had that option. And so, yeah, um, you know, I mean, I think some of it, and this is certainly not a compliment to him, but he does have perseverance. You know, he loves the limelight. He needs it. He needs that celebrity to thrive. This is one of the many reasons that I wish that they would stop airing his press conferences live because it's like giving, you know, more oxygen to a fire that's engulfing the country. But that is something that he does. Uh, he works hard at being a criminal. He works hard right. at maintaining his power. He's not actually lazy. You know, a lot of folks like to think of him that way, but in a very, very perverse way, he has a work ethic. So one of the other main things you've talked about, not only in your book, but, you know, on social media and on MSNBC, is just the connections between Trump and Russia. And I want to ask a question that kind of looks more forward. Let, let's say like Trump loses to Joe Biden and Russia is still going to be trying to undermine our economy and our democracy, as you detail in the book. Like, how do we as a country fight back against that? Because for a lot of people that have studied Russia, yourself included, Russia seems like this unstoppable and unbeatable Goliath 
And even if people talk tough about wanting to like push back against them, it, it seems like a very daunting task. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And in a way, it's a kind of idealistic scenario because there are a lot of things I'm worried about. One, are we having an election in November? And that actually wasn't something I was worried about because usually even dictators like to have elections because they love to claim that like 95% of the vote. But given what happened today in Wisconsin, um, given the uncertainties of the coronavirus, I don't know whether we're going to have an election or how that election is going to be conducted. But let's say in the best case scenario, uh, Joe Biden beats Trump, uh, wins the election. Trump has no intention to leave. Even if this election is free and fair and is proven you know, an overwhelming victory for Biden, he has no intention of leaving the White House because that means relinquishing what he actually cares about, which is money, power, and immunity from prosecution. And that third one is essential. I don't know exactly whether Joe Biden will continue in this path of letting Republican criminality go unpunished. That's something that's been happening for 40 years, ever since you know Ford uh, let Nixon go. And then we saw unpunished criminals involved in Iran-Contra, in the illegal war in Iraq, in the financial crisis. A lot of those actors are, in fact, involved with in the Trump administration. Um, but if he did that, that would be one of the first things he'd have to deal with, is a Republican president that refuses to leave, that's backed uh, by an apparatus by, like Mitch McConnell, that also behaves with no regard for the law. And then on top of that, you have Russia. And a lot of people act like Russia's motives are so mysterious. You know, why are they so invested in Donald Trump? Well, it's not just Russia, like Putin pulling the strings. It's a complex apparatus of the Kremlin, of oligarchs, of organized crime. It's not completely limited to Russia. A lot of these guys have multiple passports. They are laundering money. And one of the things Russia is very concerned about are sanctions. They don't want to have sanctions. They want to basically illegally dominate money. And they want to be able to continue things like conquering territory like they did in Crimea and uh, illegally taking it um, from other countries without any kind of intervention from the United States or NATO or the EU. That's why they've been chipping away at the EU. That's why they supported Brexit. Um, you know, you see their, their machinations everywhere you look. They're not going to stop, you know, even with the Biden administration or whoever comes next, they will have to deal with Russia as a severe geopolitical threat. And I'm concerned because the Obama administration did not do that. And Biden was the vice president during that time. And by 2014, it was very clear what Russia was doing. They had invaded Crimea. They had hacked the State Department, the DOD, the DNC, the RNC. Notably, they never released the emails from the RNC. They had hacked our power grid. Um, and they had you know, carried out a lot of propaganda initiatives and threatening behavior. All of that has continued. Uh, they're happy with their puppet, Trump. Uh, they like him. They like Ivanka and Jared. They don't want any of these guys to leave because they give them everything that they want. So they're going to put up a fight for them to stay. Um, and if Biden is there, I mean, we certainly got a taste for it. They target family members. That's why they went after Hunter Biden. And I'm not defending Hunter Biden. You know, I think he's a sleazebag. I don't think he necessarily did anything illegal, uh, but he's definitely like a slimy guy who I, I personally wouldn't vouch for. Uh, but that's the kind of thing they'll do. And we've seen that a lot in this administration. They target people's families. They targeted Alexander Vindman's families. They also, frankly, 
literally threatened to kill you. They did that to Marie Ivanovich, Fiona Hill, to multiple members of the media, to Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who they did in fact murder or, you know, people aligned with this administration murdered. So that's a very frightening climate. It's the climate of a mafia state. And a mafia state does not disappear overnight, and it does not disappear, unfortunately, with an election. We'll be right back after this quick break with my conversation with Sarah Kenzior. So I want to shift back to, uh, to Missouri and specifically St. Louis and specifically, uh, I wanna, I'm going to use the word our experiences in Ferguson because we were both covering the Ferguson uprising at the same time. Uh, there was a particular passage of your book that was very poignant to me. Um, and it, you wrote, it is one thing to watch a region implode on TV. It's another to live through a slow motion implosion. I, I want you to elaborate on that because as a reporter covering the events that transpired after Michael Brown's shooting death, I felt that almost identical sentiment. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a traumatic time for St. Louis. It was obviously most traumatic for the family of Michael Brown. Uh, it was most traumatic for St. Louis's black community um, and for the protesters uh, who were tear gassed and abused by the police. But it was incredibly difficult for everyone. The uncertainty of it, the looming violence and the exploitation of it. Um, that was something I, I found very hard to fathom because we saw people come in from all over the world to watch us, um, to watch us, but to not see us to not care, to not think of this region, to not think of people in St. Louis as, as real human beings with lives uh, who are experiencing loss, who are experiencing trauma, who are wondering you know, what each day will bring. And maybe there's a sense of that now uh, because of the Trump administration or because of coronavirus. You know, maybe there's a sense of that feeling of having um, you know, your darkest, your, your hurt and your agony exposed in that kind of callous and cavalier way. It's not a feeling I wish upon anyone. It's a feeling I, I never want to feel again, but unfortunately I, I continually uh, you know, am, am forced to due to our political climate. Um, but yeah, it was a very hard thing to live through. Um, you know, there were some people who kind of popped into St. Louis from out of town, you know, profited off the situation, seemed to, I wouldn't say enjoy it exactly, but they didn't feel that that deep rupture, uh, that deep kind of rift in their daily life. Their kids weren't sent from home from school with a riot packet. You know, their longtime friends weren't used in the stock photos of uh, carnage and riots. And when their friends die, you know, which is what happened to me, and I write about that in the book, they didn't have to read a bunch of, you know, facetious, suddenly caring obituaries and tributes. And that happened all the time uh, with St. Louis. Uh, and it happens a lot now. So at the least, I tried to just, uh, you know, respect people and respect their experiences and their lives, you know, for who they are um, and what we all had to go through together. I'm glad you mentioned the, the national media coverage, because as a local reporter, I have really mixed feelings about how the national media uh, covered Michael Brown's death. Like on the one hand, I, I think it was important for the national media to cover it at the level it did, because I think it pre presented the issue of how police treat black people into the national debate and the national con consciousness. But as you write in the book, a lot of national media came to treat this as a violent spectacle, as opposed to like the start of a national civil rights movement. So how do we come to terms with those dual realities? 
you know, there were times where they would report from places they didn't know where they were. Like they'd be in U City and they're like, we're here in downtown St. Louis near the arch. I'm like, do you not realize the absence of an arch around you? Uh, you know, and it would have been funny, um, except that the situation itself was so tragic. And I remember when I first heard um, about, you know, the murder of Michael Brown, it, it, I think it was Tefpo's uh, Instagram, you know, and then also local reports from people on social media in St. Louis. And no one knew his name then. Uh, no one knew precisely what had happened. But we knew, you know, that there was a body um, on the road in, in Ferguson that the police had, had killed a young man. Um, and then, it, you know, my thought at first was that I was worried no one would cover it. I was worried no one would care because, you know, this is a violent city um, and the victims of violence are often people who are ignored while they're alive. Like the structural conditions that people live their life in, um, you know, poverty and, and just a general sense of hardship are often ignored. And so I was worried people wouldn't care. People wouldn't pay attention to it. And of course, the opposite was true. It became this international event. Uh, you know, and it, in retrospect, it really makes me wonder exactly why. I mean, of course, it, before that came um, Trayvon Martin and other cases of police brutality, but it still was jarring to see all of these people who clearly knew nothing about St. Louis and cared nothing otherwise just descending upon, you know, a memorial for Michael Brown or to see big networks like MSNBC literally putting themselves in cages to sequester themselves from the local population. Or, you know, I went with um, our friend Umar Lee, um, who I don't need to explain who he is to see who is folks. Uh, you know, we were covering the story um, and we were in, in Ferguson and he went into a barber shop and we were just, you know, talking to some people who worked there, getting their ideas about things. They, CNN wanted him to get in a chair and get a haircut. So it looked like some natural little backdrop for them. And he did it because we just wanted to see how cable news operated. We wanted to see that mask that cable news wears. But it was jarring because you really felt like, you know, we were pawns in the Hunger Games. Like we were District 12 and they were the capital and they'd come in to film our pain and the lust they had for violence, the way that they would barely cover the ongoing protests. And that's the thing I want to emphasize is that this, the Ferguson protests went on peacefully for months. It was, you know, the longest standing civil rights demonstration uh, since the 1960s. Almost none of those protests were covered. The ones that were covered were the rare nights of violence, of arson, of events like that. That's what the media was interested in. They weren't particularly interested in the structural problems. They weren't interested in the networks of support and in the feeling of, of resolution that a lot of protesters and just residents of the area had. And that was a sad thing um, to see lost in the story because, you know, to me that that was the story. One of the things that I found most compelling about Hiding in Plain Sight was your decision to write about yourself in a lot more specific detail than you usually do. You, you've talked about your experiences in academia before, but you really kind of showcased like what it was like to be living in New York City during 9-11 or be in St. Louis during Ferguson or be in St. Louis during the economic calamity of 2008. And I want to just ask, was it difficult to reveal a lot more about yourself in this book and about your family in this book? And how did you kind of come to terms with that that was going to be kind of a major thread that was going to piece this book together? I'm typically not someone who writes uh, extensively in first person, and I'm not someone who really reveals that much, um, you know, of my personal life. 
But um, part of this was, you know, I was looking at these different strands of American history. I was looking at Trump's rise. I was looking at the mafia cohort that was backing him. I was looking at the loss of our institutional stability, uh, the decline of the economy. And I was noticing that a lot of these trends uh, basically began everything, Trump's rise and the, the fall of America, right around when I was born. So I kept thinking of my own life um, as influenced through the, these lenses. And of course, I, you know, I've had this tendency to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, which is obviously clear by my book coming out during a plague. Um, but yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to do is make sure that the experience of ordinary Americans, particularly Americans of our generation who haven't really known anything else but this, uh, was captured. And yeah, I did that through the lens of my own life. And I'm not saying that I, I speak for everybody, certainly. But I think that what sometimes gets lost when people think, oh, Trump, Russia, or this indictment, or this espionage puzzle, like, or this economic problem, they see it as an abstract policy issue. And that strand to, well, how does this affect my daily life? You know, how, who caused this? Who exactly is responsible here? Who did this to me? Who did this to my generation? I think that names need to be named. Uh, and, you know, the Trump administration is more of a culmination of trends than anything. It's certainly not the only offender, um, but I wanted to call that out. And, you know, I, I had never written anything like this, anything so uh, personal, anything so autobiographical and not to be completely morbid, but, um, you know, as I was writing it, I wasn't necessarily assuming it would come out, um, that I'd be here when it would come out, that there'd be a pr free press. I was thinking of my children. I was thinking, you know, if something were to happen, what do I want my children to know about me? And if something were to happen, you know, because this is during a time I was getting a lot of death threats, they'd wonder, like, why'd she do what she did? You know, why'd she put herself on the line like that? Why'd she put herself in harm's way so many times? Um, and so I wanted a record for them. I wanted them to remember me if they weren't able to actually remember me in real life. Um, you know, for those who don't know, I have a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old. And I'm always thinking about, you know, well, what if something happens? Who writes history? Everyone says, oh, history will judge these people unkindly. But the reality is, you know, the victors write history. And if the current people in charge of our government write history, uh, my story will not be told accurately, and nor will the stories of many others. And so I wanted to preserve that, um, you know, because we're not fighting abstract battles here. We're fighting for our survival. We're fighting for our kids. We're fighting for our future and we're fighting for our freedom. And I wanted to be as honest about that um, as I could. And so, you know, I laid myself on the line again and uh, come what may. So of all your experiences, I think I was especially struck the most about how your family struggled during the Great Recession. And frankly, the reason I struck by it because I, I related to it. I, I lost my job in 2008 and 2011. I'm not going to say it's because of the recession. You could chalk it up to being an immature 24-year-old punk who got sideways with management. But I mean, not going broke while I was freelancing during those two periods of time was probably the hardest thing that I've ever done. But I, I was able to push through that because I had a social circle to lean on. And I want to ask this question in, in, in the comparison of 2008 to what we're going through now. And it, it brings to mind people right now who've been laid off, especially people who are kind of lower income. Uh, they don't have a social safety net. They can't go to a bar and hang out with friends. They can't karaoke. They can't 
they can't join a comedy troupe. So like, how do people push through this really horrible economic situation, which we're all hoping is temporary, but probably isn't without like the, the layers of social support that may have been around in 2008 through 2012. It's very hard. And I think it, it depends who you are, um, you know, because there are people going through this through various degrees of, of difficulty. Um, you know, I've gone through, like I write about in the book about our, you know, year of living near the poverty line, um, you know, and my husband had, had lost his job, although he actually had two minimum wage jobs um, for 16 months. And I was taking care of our kids and I was freelancing. We were barely surviving. So I know intimately um, how that feels. But what we're going through now is different. Um, we have near 30% possibly unemployment. And the uncertainty, I think, is honestly what's what's getting to people the most. The fact that we don't know uh, will this quote unquote end? I mean, there's obviously going to be permanent um, you know, or at least longstanding results of this in a few months. Um, or are we going to be going through this for years? Or is the Trump administration going to exploit it? Um, so it's worse in even other ways. Uh, the answer to that is yes, by the way, they will. It, it's a hard thing because I think a lot of the things that we reach to for comfort or security, whether it's just something simple like a walk outside or a visit to a friend's house or a night at a restaurant for a treat, um, you know, those those things are abruptly gone. And so we're hanging on to each other through mass communication, um, you know, through the Internet, through social media. Um, there are obviously a lot of downsides to social media, but, you know, there are there are upsides too. the fact that we are able to communicate in this way. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of Facebook because I don't like Mark Zuckerberg and I don't like the way that Facebook has been weaponized as a political tool. But I have seen a lot of people using it in a productive way. Um, you know, getting together with other parents for comfort, um, you know, basically offering each other emotional support and sympathy. What I don't like is that this is all happening under surveillance. You know, we're opening up to each other in this very raw way during a time where people might want to, you know, harness that emotion for political ends. And that's a frightening thing. That said, I mean, you know, do what you can to survive this time. Like, Everyone keeps asking me, like, what do we do? What do we do? Like, there's some big project we should be working on while a literal plague is outside. And I'm basically like, you know, stay inside. Don't spread the disease. Try not to catch the disease and just survive. Like, if you get through the day, then you're good. And this is actually advice that goes out to new parents all the time, you know, especially new moms who are home alone with a baby all day long. It's like, if you're alive and the kid's alive at the end of the day, then you did a great job. You don't have to be like hyper-educating them all the time or, or carrying out some grand achievement or something. Um, but yeah, I, I've never seen anything quite as bad as this. And it's ironic in a way that I wrote a book that's so full of catastrophes and also speaks of looming catastrophes. I mean, it, there's like an apocalyptic edge to the book that, you know, to be honest, my, my editor and some others thought was a little bit overblown. And I was thinking, no, you know, this is a book for 2020. This is, I think, what it's going to unfortunately feel like in 2020. And unfortunately, um, I was right. Uh, and so I guess another thing people can do is, you know, look to books, look to art, uh, look to, you know, others who lived, uh, you know, in these times and, and get guidance there. Like, I know I've been doing a lot of that. I've been looking up everybody who was born in the 1870s and 1880s and watching the progression of their life, trying to figure out what people who are my age during the Spanish flu and during World War I were doing, because there are these, um, these parallels to our time. That's the end of the first part of my conversation with Sarah Kenzior, the author of Hiding in Plain Sight and The View from Flyover Country. The second part of this podcast will feature Sarah answering questions from social media.